0: There's many different ways to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. Later on, we're going to celebrate communion. Um, Some churches, they have what you call the stations of the cross, where you remember uh, the various uh, things that happened on the way to Golgotha. But what we're going to do tonight is something that the church has been doing for 2,000 years. Um, We're going to remember the words that Jesus actually spoke while hanging on the cross. Um, He spoke seven utterances, seven words, seven sentences, um, and we're going to meditate on each one of them. Now, um, first, let me begin by pointing out that the natural response To being hurt is to hurt back. When I was in college, um, my roommate and I, we lived in a dorm, and we were in the basement of the dorm, and we were getting ready for, it was actually for a variety show, and in um, the closet, we had a key to the closet, we were looking through the closet, and we found a big bucket full of old sports equipment. There were basketballs and footballs and hockey sticks. And uh, there were also two pairs of boxing gloves. So when two guys find boxing gloves, (laughs) we just start putting them on. And there were some other people around, and they tied them up. And we said, you want to? Sure. So we start dancing around, and boom! Boom! So I hit him back, and he hit me back. And all of a sudden, we're just going nuts. Because you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. In about 30 seconds, we were exhausted. because Have any of you ever boxed before? Raise your hand. Yeah, it's pretty exhausting, isn't it? But when you get hit, you turn animal, right? The natural response when you're hurt is to hurt back. Which is why the first words of Jesus are so amazing. He has just been cruelly beaten, flogged, mocked, laughed at, stripped naked. He is hanging from nails in his hands and his feet. He is in agony. You would think the natural response would be to look down upon those who had just done this to him and to pray for their eternal damnation in hell. Yet the first thing that Jesus says on the cross... We good? Well, I'm just going to read it. But, first thing Jesus says is, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Forgive them. They do not know what they do. Who is this? Now, when he said, they don't know what they do, understand, he doesn't mean they don't know that they're being cruel and unjust and brutal. It means they had no idea of the monstrosity of the crime they were committing. They were crucifying their creator. They had no idea. But that ignorance certainly did not excuse their sin. Otherwise, Jesus would not have prayed for their forgiveness. Now, interesting question this raises. They don't seem repentant. And everything in Scripture seems to indicate that forgiveness is dependent upon repentance. In fact... Look what they do right after they crucify him and they cast lots to divide his garments. They could care less about him. Who gets his cloak? And they roll some dye and they get uh, they figure out who gets to keep his clothes. So were they forgiven? Father forgive them, but they're not repentant. Can you be forgiven? Well, what's interesting is I believe Christ's pleading for their forgiveness included a pleading for their salvation, and they did come to repentance. In fact, some amazing things happen as Jesus hangs on the cross. The next thing that happens is one of the thieves believes in Jesus, and he is forgiven, and he is saved. When Jesus dies, the centurion, the soldier in charge of the other soldiers, says, surely this was a righteous man. He believes. And, did you ever notice this? When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. I think they came to believe. I think when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, that prayer not only was, it wasn't just a a wish, it contained in it a prayer for their salvation. And they were saved. Amazing. So the first thing Jesus says is, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. The next thing, the thief, he's crucified between two thieves. Both of them are mocking Jesus. Yet one of them comes to believe. And he says, remember me. Now, biblically, remember doesn't mean just you forgot, now remember. It means take action on my behalf. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this is such an amazing event that I'm going to save this one for Sunday. We're going to see the gospel displayed in all its glory through this event. Okay, But before we move on, I just want you to notice something. Notice again, in the midst of his agony, Jesus is more concerned with others than himself. He is in agony, yet, Father, forgive them. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He is caring for the souls of others while paying for the ultimate the the ultimate price for their sin on the cross. Now, along these same lines, the next thing that happens is this. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So there was Mary, Mary, and Mary, all standing at the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. So who would that be? John. Okay, so John is writing this gospel, and he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. If I were John, I'd refer to myself that way too. So Jesus looks down. He sees John. He sees his mother, Mary. And he says, woman, that's, that's, that's a, a term of respect. Okay. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Hanging on the cross, he's concerned about the welfare Of his mother. You want to know what you can do to be more spiritual? Visit your parents. Play with your kids. Love your wife. You say, but but I want to make an impact for Jesus. I want to change the world. Visit your parents. Play with your kids. Love your wife. You're not doing that. You're not doing the basics. Here Jesus, in agony, is a good son. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. John, take care. Take care of my mom. Again, in utter agony, more concerned about others than himself. Number four, now from the sixth hour, okay, now this is, uh, the time is being reckoned as uh, the first hour is 6 a.m., so he was crucified at 9 a.m., he's been hanging on the cross for three hours, now from the sixth hour, so this is noon, So from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So from noon till 3 p.m., it's dark. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which is interesting because uh, this is in English, but it was written in Greek, but Jesus spoke Aramaic. This is in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. So Matthew now says, that is, and he translates it for us. Now, he originally translated it from the Aramaic into the Greek, but we get it in the English. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, um, I like the ESV study Bible. It's a really good study Bible, and here's what the note says on this verse. This was not a solar eclipse since Passover occurred during a full moon, and a solar eclipse can occur only during a new moon. Rather, it is a supernatural act of God. So, you, you get that. Some people say, oh, this is just a, uh, uh, an eclipse of the sun. The moon is passing in front. Have you ever seen a three hour eclipse? No. Plus, for the moon to pass in front of the sun, it wouldn't be a full moon, it would be a new moon. You wouldn't see it until it passed in front of the sun. So this, I, I totally agree so far, whoops, with this, uh, with this note, that this is not an eclipse. It's a supernatural act of God. Now, look what, what it says. Displaying his displeasure... And judgment upon humanity for crucifying his son. No. No. The darkness is not God displaying his displeasure upon humanity, it's God displaying his pleasure, his displeasure upon who? Upon Jesus. It's God pouring out his wrath upon Jesus. The darkness is a picture of his disapproval of sin which has been placed upon Jesus. 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was bearing our sin. You want to know what God thinks of your sin? Look outside. And our sin was placed upon him. The blood is God's disapproval of Jesus, the sin bearer. The crown of thorns is God's disapproval of Jesus, the sin bearer. Not that he did anything wrong, but he is our substitute bearing our sin. So God is pouring darkness upon him. Galatians says this, 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He is hanging under the anathema, the curse of God. Right? At this point, there is no pity between God the Father and God the Son. Now, how you reconcile that with the Trinity and their eternal love, I don't I don't know. No, I don't know. Okay, um, R.C. Sproul has written about this. See, some people think that when Jesus cried, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?", that Jesus really didn't know why he was hanging on the cross. No, Sproul writes this. He says his cry was not as Albert Schweitzer opined the cry of a disillusioned prophet who had believed that God was going to rescue him at the 11th hour and then felt forsaken. So some people think Albert Schweitzer was this great, uh, great mind. He may have been great in medicine. He was a liberal who didn't believe Jesus was God. He He thought Jesus was a great human teacher, and he thought God was going to rescue him but here he hangs disillusioned on the cross. No. Why, why did he cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't just feel forsaken. He was forsaken. Why did he cry, why have you forsaken? Because he was forsaken. For Jesus to become the curse, he had to be completely forsaken by the Father. This was a cry of the damned. He is damned by God the Father. This is not a swear word. This is really damnation by God. Then Sproul gets angry at liberal preachers. He says, Every time I hear a preacher tell his people that God loves them unconditionally, I want to ask that the man be defrocked for such a violation of the word of God. Um, what, What he means is, Yes, he loves you unconditionally if you are in Christ. But there was a condition for God to now love you unconditionally. And that condition was his own son had to be be cursed. He says, it was as if there was a cry from heaven, as if Jesus heard the words, damn you. Because that's what it meant to be cursed. And under the anathema of the father, I don't understand that. But I know that it's true. I know that every person who has not been covered by the righteousness of Christ draws every breath under the curse of God. If you believe that, you will stop adding to the gospel and start preaching it with clarity and boldness because, dear friends, it's the only hope we have. And it is hope enough. Stop adding your own works to the gospel. Stop saying, well, it was, it's Jesus plus my prayers, my good works, my sacramite, or sacraments, my record of my own good that I'm going to bring on Judgment Day before God. You know how insulting that is to Jesus? Who paid the full price, who became a curse, who was damned in your place? Jesus, here I have your record... And my record in between the two of us, maybe we'll get in. No, he paid the full price. Would you please abandon your self-effort to get into heaven? Your sacramental effort to get into heaven? Your religious works to get you into heaven? Did he not pay it all? As he hangs under the wrath of God, he says, I thirst. I thirst. These words remind us of the very real humanity of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is 100% God, 100% human in one person. Okay? Remember, the Trinity is there's only one God who consists of three persons. The second person of the Trinity is one person who is fully God and fully man in one person. Just sit and think about that for about a day and a half and see if you get it figured out. Okay. Now, some people, like Albert Schweitzer, will say, well, I'm willing to follow Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I'm not going to follow him as God. They don't buy the deity of Christ. Now, John, who wrote that Jesus said, I thirst, begins his gospel with this. In the beginning was the Word. That's another term for Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So from the beginning, Jesus was with and was God. Separate from, yet identical to, God. So we don't have to come up with some... Uh, hidden verse to prove the deity of Christ. The, 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 John's gospel, his best friend, begins the gospel saying, Jesus is God. Okay? To demonstrate his divinity, he raises people from the dead. He walks on water. He turns water into wine. He feeds thousands of people with one boy's lunch. He confounds the Pharisees and the scribes. He cleanses lepers. He heals whole villages. He casts out demons. He stills the storm. He reads people's minds. He raises from the dead. So, one danger is to so emphasize his humanity that you ignore his divinity. But there's another danger. And that is so emphasizing his divinity that you think his humanity was nothing more than an illusion. As a 100% human being, he was born a baby and wrapped in swaddling clothes, and it wasn't a silent night. He increased in wisdom in knowledge and stature. He became tired. He needed a drink as he was passing through Samaria. He needed to rest. He mourned at the death of his friend Lazarus. He slept. He ate. He was hungry. He was betrayed. He felt the pain of it. And on the cross, he was dying of thirst been 20 hours since he's had a drink. Due to the flogging, and the sweating, and the beating, he is severely dehydrated. This was all prophesied by David a thousand years earlier. Psalm 22, my strength is dried up like a pot sherd, and my tongue Sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Number six. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, people debate was this the last thing he said or was the last thing that he said, it is finished? Um, I'm going to tell you in a minute why I think it is finished was the last thing he said. So the second to last thing he says is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, um, these words help us to determine how long Jesus was on the cross atoning for our sins. He was on the cross for six hours. And then he was done. You see, why is this important? There are a number of Christians who actually believe that Christ then continued to pay for our sins in hell for three days, until he rose from the dead. In other words, six hours on the cross, then his soul went to hell uh, for three days, and then finally he was resurrected, but his atonement wouldn't have been six hours, but for three days. Now, that is clearly wrong, just from the statements that we've already looked at, or, or from two of them. One of them uh, is, he says, to the thief. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow. Ne- Today, you'll be with me in paradise. In a moment, he's going to say, it is finished, which is another indication that his atoning work is done. But here, he says, into your hands, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Not, I commit my spirit to three days in hell, uh, in hell and then into your Presence, but now I commit my spirit. Where's the idea come from that he went to hell for three days? Anybody know? Huh? 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 Ephesians four. Nope. <laughs> the Apostles' Creed it says he was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell the third day he rose again from the dead that's where it comes from you'll was it wrong yeah it's wrong why would why would god allow the apostles creed to be wrong because even the most basic christian creed is not our final authority our only authority is scripture Here's something interesting. The phrase, he descended into hell. By the way, the Apostles' Creed, no doubt, it was the first creed that the early church put together. And it does, except for this phrase, reflect the teachings of the apostles. It wasn't written by the apostles. The apostles didn't get together and say, hey, come on, let's come up with a creed so we can repeat it in church every Sunday. Okay, the early church composed the Apostles' Creed. The phrase, he descended into hell, did not appear until the year 390. And there are many manuscripts and many writings of the Apostles' Creed. There's only one one manuscript from the year 390. And then it became more, uh, it was in more manuscripts in in the year 650. After 650, that's when it became kind of a permanent part. It's a textual variant that was added later in church history. You say, well, why do we keep it? Well, both Catholics and Protestants do agree, let's keep that phrase in there, But most would say that that word hell, Gehenna, in the Greek, can simply mean the grave. He descended, or he was thrown into a grave for three days. So that's all it means, is that he was put in the grave. Now why is this important? Why are we arguing that he only atoned for sin for six hours? Not to lessen what he did, but for us to realize that the eternal payment for sin, if you pay for your own sin, you know how long it's going to take? Eternity in hell. Jesus suffered in those six hours. All the sins, the payment for all the sins of all believers of all time. And what that should make you realize is the incredible wrath he experienced. The nails and the blood and the thorns are nothing compared to the wrath of his father being poured out upon him. Atoning for your sin. You say, well, how can he pay in that amount of time an eternal debt? Once again, I don't have an easy answer to that, but he did, and it tells you, it shows you a little decree of what he suffered spiritually on the cross. Last thing. He says, it is finished. And here's why I think it's the last thing he said. John says, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So it seems to be that this, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he shouts, it is finished. And he dies. Okay. Now, this is not just... A cry of relief. Oh, the suffering is over. This is a statement of the gospel. It's an announcement of what he came to do being accomplished and finished. What did he come to do? It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to pay the price. He came to pay a ransom. A ransom is something you pay to set somebody free. He came, his mission was to pay a ransom for many. And when he was done, he said, mission accomplished. It is finished. Again, If you believe your good works, your sacraments, your religious record contributes to your salvation, he was wrong, because it's not finished. Mission not accomplished yet. You better get busy. Have you done enough? Have you prayed enough? Have you gone to confession enough? Are you good enough to add to what he did to, to make it into heaven? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He paid it all. And when he bowed his head, before he bowed his head, he said, It is finished assuring me that I'm going to heaven. Oh, you must be pretty good, Pastor Brighton. No, I'm not good at all. Those of you who know me pretty well, sinner, just like everybody else. How are you getting into heaven? It is finished. That's the gospel. If, if that's not your gospel, your gospel is not good news. It's pretty bad news. How do you know you've done enough? I haven't done enough. But he paid the full price and said, it is finished. In the Greek, it's tetelestai. It's a word that they found on ancient receipts. It means paid in full. So, farmer makes a deal. You know, I'll give you X amount of bushels if you give me from your herd. The exchange is made. The receipt is written paid in full. It's a victory cry. It is finished. We're going to celebrate communion. You know, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people celebrated a thing called the Day of Atonement. On the day of the Atonement, the Jewish high priest was to take two goats, not one, two goats. One goat he was to kill and drain the blood. And sprinkle the blood all over the temple. The second goat, he was to lay his hands on the head of the goat. And confess the sins of the nation upon that goat. The goat was then to be taken far away from Israel. From the presence of God. Into the wilderness. It was to be forsaken. Abandon. Both goats, and here's, here's a, one of these cases where one goat wouldn't tell you the full story, you need two goats to give you the full picture. Both goats are a picture of Christ. On the cross, he is slaughtered to pay for our sins. And on the cross, our sins are laid on him, and he is abandoned, forsaken by God. Jesus was the lamb, the goat, who was slain. And when he cried, it is finished, his sacrifice was accepted as Fully, full payment for our sin. Jesus was the Lamb who was abandoned, forsaken. When he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was being forsaken in our place. Now, Sunday, we're going to celebrate the fact that he walked out of the grave alive. God's way of saying, accepted forgiven, fully paid, and as a witness to the world, he's alive. I want to invite you to communion. Communion, after all we've covered, is not to be taken lightly, but we are to rejoice that God loves us enough that he would be willing to go through everything he went through so our sins could be forgiven.